This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. Today I'm going to be talking with Carl Phillips. Carl Phillips is the author of 15 books of poetry, most recently Pale Colors in a Tall Field from Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud just last year, 2020. Also, Wild is the Wind in 2018, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Other honors include the Aiken Taylor Award for Modern American Poetry, the Kingsley Tufts Award, a Lambda Literary Award, the Penn USA Award for Poetry, and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Library of Congress, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and the Academy of American Poets. He has also written two prose books, The Art of Daring, Risk, Restlessness, Imagination, from Grey Wolf in 2014. Also, Coin of the Realm, Essays on the Life and Art of Poetry, Grey Wolf, 2004. He's also translated Philoctetes of Sophocles, and he teaches at Washington University in St. Louis. Welcome, Carl Phillips. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is so great to have you here on the Hive Poetry Collective. I feel really lucky to be able to talk to you today. And as always here on the Hive, when I'm doing interviews, I like to ask the poet to bring a poet, a poem to the interview that resonates with him. And you brought a poem by Lee Poe today. Um, and I'm going to ask you to read it. Before you read it, is there anything you'd like to tell us about that poem? Sure. Um, I, well, I selected it because I've learned maybe the most from um, classical Chinese poets um, of the Tang Dynasty era. Li Po is one of the main poets of that time. And I've learned so much about brevity, the economy and um, the work that images can do. So um, I stumbled upon this particular poem the other day and thought, you know, this would be interesting. And I don't know that people would immediately think that these are the, this is a poem that's influential for me. Um, so I'm going to read it. It's by Li Po and the translator is uh, Shigeyoshi Obata. It's called A Midnight Farewell. By a pale lantern, under the cold moon, we were drinking heavily together. Frightened by our orgies, a white heron flaffed out of the river shallows. It was midnight. That's the poem. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> always um, surprising to me when I read the Tang poets, how they get under your skin and affect your writing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I mean, I, well, I already said about economy, but when I first discovered the Tang Dynasty poets, I hadn't even written my first book yet. And, and it just, I didn't know that a poem could be this short and, and still have resonance. And um, my poems tend not to be as short as this one, but that doesn't mean I didn't learn a lot about sort of making sure only exactly what's needed is needed. And I love how this poem sort of, it's bracketed by time, the time that the moon's out, and then we end with midnight. 
And then within it, time, this cage of time contains the human beings having their drinking party, but side by side with the white heron. So there's something about the juxtaposition of human life and animal life, but also this way in which the humans are kind of an interruption to the animal's life, to the bird's life. But the bird in leaving the water is an interruption to the surface of the water. And yet at the end of the day, what stays constant in the poem is time. It's as if some part of the poem is saying things happen, um, but time doesn't change. Time goes on and, and these events that happen in between two ends of time are memorable and erasable. Um, I don't know, this, it, it reminds me, I guess, of that humility of realizing you're one of how many people are on the planet and, and the planet is one of how many things in the universe. <laughs> so I don't know, I like that reminder. There's a kind of a tension there that's created by the different kinds of time. Yes. The eternal and the momentary. I feel like the title does a lot of work, Midnight Farewell. It does. I always wonder, is that the actual title or did the translator just give it a title? Because I don't know that Lee Poe titled his poems, um, but it does make a difference to me because on one hand, I think, well, nothing's saying farewell. I suppose the heron is leaving. So there's that. Or are we supposed to think that two people are drinking because that's their last night together? I don't know. It, it certainly brings loss into the poem a little more starkly. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, you're right. On the surface, it would not seem like this would be a poem that you would choose as, a, as an influence. Mm -hmm. But... As we go on, I think maybe I'll talk a little bit about why I, I think it is. Actually, maybe I'll just say it right now. I think one of the reasons why I find this somewhat like your writing is that, and this has been on my mind a lot lately, is that as poets, we're obsessed with the turn and we're obsessed with discovery and uncovering the unknown. And that happens in this poem. You feel a feeling in this poem that's a little bit like a discovery, but it's not done in a way that is very literal. It's done through the imageries. Like you said, the work the images do creates a little discovery in the heart. It's almost like a sensation. Mm -hmm. that you get. And I feel like that's what happens in your poetry. The turns are not very literal. Like you don't get a lot of, and that reminds me of the, the philosopher so-and-so and who said this, and isn't this like that? And, and that makes me remember this and a more overt attempt at describing discovery. I don't see that as much in your poetry. I see the images doing the work and the syntax. Mm -hmm. Doing a yeah, I think, yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think too, I'm very interested in juxtaposing images and simply leaving them next to each other to provoke thought, as opposed to saying, this is what this means. And that's what I like about the Tang Dynasty poets is they often, in this case, putting the moon next to the drinking party, next to the heron, 
next to time, we can make meaning out of that. But the poet at no point says, this is what this is about. Um, this is what you should be thinking. And for better or worse, that's generally how my poems work. Um, when they end, I feel, of course, they end where they should. But I know they often leave people with a sense of what? Or, or in the way that certain the kind of movies that I enjoy do, where they're not a sort of straight linear story. Here are the chapters and now here's the meaning, the conclusion. But I love leaving a theater and thinking, what, what did I just watch? What, what am I to think about how that ended? And um, to me, that's what I mean by resonance, that the poem starts to generate its own life past where it ends on the page. Yeah, that's uh, um, what these- it's kind of patience in a way. It, it's like, I think that's what it is. It's I've, those Chinese poets have, rem they remind me that restraint has its own power and you have to trust as a reader who, who doesn't need to be spoon fed, but wants to, wants the, you could call it difficulty or the sort of play, the invitation to play with, with the images that have been set before them. Well, let me, since this poem is so short, let me read it one more time and then we'll go to one of your poems. Sure. Midnight Farewell by a pale lantern under the cold moon. We were drinking heavily together, frightened by our orgies, a white heron flaffed out of the river shallows. It was midnight. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about that poem for a long time, actually. Um, the modifiers in it, for example, are very yes. big. Um, pale, mm -hmm. cold, heavily, white, river. There's just a lot of, uh, oh, anyway, a lot of colors and there's a lot to say about it. But let's move on to some of your poems. And I want to start with a poem in Pale Colors in a Tall Field, your most recent book. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the first poems in the, the volume and it's called On Being Asked to Be More Specific When It Comes to Longing. So um, Carl Phillips, could you read this for, me, for us? Sure. Yeah, it's a bit of a long title. On Being Asked to Be More Specific When It Comes to Longing. When the forest ended, so did the star flowers and wild ginger that for so long had kept us company. The clearing opened before us, a vast meadow of silverrod, each stem briefly an angled argument against despair. Then only weeds by a better name again, as incidental as the backdrop the ocean made just beyond the meadow. Like taking a horsewhip to a swarm of bees that they might more easily disperse, We'd at last reached the point in twilight where twilight seems most a bowl designed to turn routinely, but as if by accident, half roughly over. Bells somewhere, the kind of bells that before being housed finally in their towers used to have to be baptized. Each was given to swing by or fall hushed inside of, accordingly, its own name, bells and then from the smudged edge of all that seemed to be left of what we called belief once, bodies, not of hunting birds, what we thought at first, but human bodies in flight, in flight and lit from within as if by ruin, 
or triumph may be at having made out of ruin a light, something useful by which having skimmed the water to search the meadow now for ourselves inside it, where yes, though we shook in our nakedness, we lay naked as we've been taught to do. When afraid, what is faith, but to make a gift of yourself, give and you shall receive. Thank you, Carl. That was Carl Phillips reading, I'm being asked to be more specific when it comes to longing from his book, Pale Colors in a Tall Field. I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. <clears throat> is this all one sentence? <laughs> I think, well, it's two. It's, it's one sentence up to the ellipses in the first stanza. And then the other one is the second, the other one is the second sentence, which is, I guess, two and a half stanzas long. Yeah, I wasn't sure if ellipses was an end of a sentence or not. Um, mm -hmm. But it feels like you have a really long uh, clause. Yeah. Um, and it's like a long journey mm -hmm. that you are taking, much like what is happening, this long walk through a forest. Um, a yes. very beautiful, a very beautiful, full of star flowers and wild ginger that had for so long kept us company. And then the clearing opens and you've got silverrod, which I have no idea what it is, but I know it's beautiful. <laughs> Yeah. I always say, if you put a flower in a poem, like 10 points. <laughs> if you, mm -hmm. if you get um, and so they're on this journey. And then this lovely description of the ocean, like taking a horsewhip to a swarm of bees. You know, that's some first class poetry right there. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> like taking uh -huh. a horsewhip to a swarm of bees. Wow, that vista. And, and it's still like, this is still an opening that you're waiting for a resolution. Uh, you're waiting for the, the principal clause of the sentence, which hasn't quite come yet. So there's this suspense, there's tension that's kind of being built up by the syntax that I really admire in this. B tension being built up by the syntax and then exquisite imagery that's stirring you as you go along the journey of the poem. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad that comes across. I mean, I I hope that I think that with I hope that at least in the imagery we can see like some connection between the Lee Poe poem and mine in the sense of I feel like the imagery has to be exact. And so it would be easy to just sort of say there was some place by the ocean or there was a field, but being exact and even I mean, everyone knows about goldenrod, but silverrod is a different wildflower. And, and so it's kind of like, if I get a little impatient when people put birds in poems, but it's always the same birds. And I think, have they ever really spent time? Because there's actually a lot of variety in the bird world. Not every bird is a robin or <laughs> cardinal. And so, so I kind of, I, I think, why not be exact about what it is? Um, and as for the syntax, yeah, that seems to be a thing I do that 
I'm interested in how syntax can become the reading of a sentence can enact a quest, an ongoing quest, which is to me what a poem is, what a body of literature is. And, and I like the idea of what I've called it in the past is muscularity. I feel like I like the, how syntax can give muscularity to a poem. It can make you feel, the reading of it makes you feel as if you've gone through something, as if a muscle has turned and you've, you've exercised in some way. So it makes it kind of more physical as a reading experience. And it's, it's the opposite of the work in the Li Po poem. The, the syntax is very straightforward there, but that's a different kind of language too. I mean, it's coming from a language that where each character resonates with so many possible meanings. Um, and anyway, syntax, I think works differently there. Right, so the shape and the form of the poem, um, which is in part influenced by the syntax, creates this multiplicity of meaning in much the way a character might mm -hmm. in, in the um, Chinese poem. I just wanna read some of these beautiful lines again. When the forest ended, so did the star flowers and wild ginger that for so long had kept us company. The clearing opened before us a vast meadow of silverrod, each stem briefly an angled argument against despair. I want to highlight that angled argument against despair and also the line breaks, um, which, are, which are so good. Oh, geez, I could really talk a lot more about this. I, um, I did feel a little bit. I did feel a little bit like it was an Ars Poetica. Uh, the bells. Hmm. Um, oh. The way you were talking about the bells was kind of a voice in the poem. Mm -hmm. Bells somewhere, the kind of bells that, before being housed finally in their tower, used to have to be baptized. Each was given to swing by or fall hushed inside of, accordingly, its own name. Bells, and then from the smudged edge of all that seemed to be left of what we called belief. Um, I, I, I don't know. I felt like that was the voice in the poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't even explain how those bells end up being in there, except I know that I had, I had learned that bells, this whole idea that bells used to be baptized. And that's fascinating to me. Um, I think of humans as being baptized. But the idea that a bell has to be given a name and baptized before it's hung in a church um, was just sort of fascinating. And I figured I could jump from the bowls to the bells. And oh. oh. So, you know, there was this thing that was like a bowl tipped over, um, twilight, I guess. And then I thought, why not just leap from that to, you know, a bowl tipped over, looks like a bell. And so why not have bells start entering the poem? And what kind of bells? This kind. So, yeah, I mean, I- well, There's a leap, there's a leap. Huh. Yeah, so yeah, you know, I come out of this lineage, um, which is a very narrative lineage and mm -hmm. the search for the turn is not done this way. It's, it's as I said, it's done with questions, 
uh, it's done much differently than this. Um, but yeah, that, that is a leap from bowl to bell. I just want to say, I just want to read, <laughs> I want to read another line in this because I feel like this is like the peak moment in the poem. But human bodies in flight, in flight and lit from within as if by ruin or triumph. Maybe at having made out of ruin a light. Uh, that, that for me is sort of like the peak <laughs> moment for the poem. There's a kind of letting go there. There's a lyric moment there. Well, also, I, I like the idea that maybe ruin can be useful. Maybe you can make something out of ruin, in this case, a light. Uh, yeah. And then the last line um, is a complete sentence because it's a command. Give and you shall receive. So much of the poem is waiting for the main clause, is waiting for the complete subject verb. And the last line actually is a sentence, but since it's a, a command, it, it lacks the, the subject. Mm -hmm. It's implied. Yeah. Uh, so that's a kind of an interesting way to end. There's this buildup, you know, waiting for the main clause and you get it, but it's, it's a different kind of main clause than you might expect. Give and you shall receive. You know, as an ex-high school teacher, I, I love this kind of, um, uh -huh. you know, an ex-English, high school English teacher. I, uh, I do love this kind of grammatical uh, analysis and example. Well, clearly I love grammar and I was a high school Latin teacher for 10 years. So um, I know what you mean. Huh. I love grammar, syntax, it's all, I've always been fascinated with all of that. Well, we have that in common. Yeah, when I, I took Spanish in high school and it was all of a sudden, wow, something interesting among, among complete monotony and boredom, all of a sudden my Spanish class where we had grammar and my, my world came alive like those flying bodies in your previous poem. All of a sudden I was, I was in ecstasy. <laughs> no one else was. Okay, so uh, this is Dion O'Reilly, kind of in ecstasy right now, reading the poems of Carl Phillips here on the Hive Poetry Collective. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. And let's go to the titular poem is that right mm -hmm. what's the other word eponymous poem yes of yeah. your of your book pale colors in a tall field mm -hmm. um after this poem remind me i want to talk about how you do your titles um but i'd like to get to this poem first okay so could you go ahead and read pale colors in a tall field for us please absolutely pale colors in a tall field Remind me to show you where the horses finally got freed for good, not for the freedom of it or anything like beauty, though their running was for sure a loveliness. I'm thinking more how there's a kind of violence to re-entering unexpectedly a space we never meant to leave, but got torn away from so long ago, it's more than half forgotten. Not that some things aren't maybe best forgotten, at a certain point at least, I've reached that point in my own life where there's so much I'd rather not remember that to be asked to do so can seem a cruelty almost. Bad enough some days that there's memory at all. Though that's not exactly it. It's more what gets remembered, how we don't get to choose. For example, 
If love used to mean rescue, now it's more gladiatorial, though in the end more clean. Who said that? Not the one whose face I've described somewhere as the sun at that moment when, as if half unwilling still to pull itself free from the night's shadow grove of losses, it first begins to appear. No, not that one. And not the one whose specialty was making a bad habit sound more excusable by calling it ritual. Since when do names excuse? Wish around for it hard enough you can always find some deeper form of sadness where earlier, so at least you thought, mere sorrow lay. I'd been arguing the difference between the soul being cast out and the soul departing. So I still believed in the soul, apparently. It was that long ago. Thank you, Carl. That was Carl Phillips reading from his book, Pale Colors in a Tall Field. And that poem was pale colors in a tall field. Like many poems in this book, I feel like this one is grappling with loss mm -hmm. and memory. Um, I, at one point, I, I almost thought, is this whole book about getting over some big loss? Mm. Um, maybe a loss from far back in life or maybe a newer one or the way those new losses are conflated with old losses. Um, I really felt that a lot in this poem. Are you, are you asking me? Oh, well, maybe you could just comment on <laughs> Sure, sure. Um, I, I mean, I don't think of the book as being about loss specifically, but I do see it as being very much a poem of, I guess I have to say I'm actually more like late middle age. I wanna say middle age, but I guess 61 isn't middle age. Um, it, to me, it's a, it's a book of what do you do when you, as you begin your new chapters with excitement in your life, but what do you do about all that you've accumulated in terms of memory and and by the time you get to be in your 60s, one, one has experienced a lot of losses, um, you know, or disappointments or regrets. And, and so it's, to me, it's a little bit like getting a pet, you know, like we get, we get a new dog and then we live with the dog for 15 years or so and then it dies and we go right back and get another one knowing that like with the first one, you might've fooled yourself into thinking this dog will be with me forever. But then you start realizing that's not so. So why do we take these things on? And most, most specifically with this book, it comes out of this and Wild as the Wind, the book before it come out of a new relationship. And so it's like the joy of a new relationship, but how do you sustain that joy when you also now know in your mind, well, I've done this thing before. I've gone, I've gone into things thinking this is the person for the rest of my life. And then that didn't happen. So, so how, do you, how do you sustain an awareness, balance an awareness of loss with um, an instinct to keep trying again? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, the <laughs> you, little tears came to my eyes when you talked about the dog. Um, uh -huh. 
And that is a really sad concept, but the language in this poem, oh, it's a nice tension between the language and the poem and, and the sadness in the poem. Remind me to show you where the horses finally got freed for good. That's, that's really beautiful. Not for the freedom of it or something like beauty, though their running was for sure a, lo a loveliness. I love that for sure in there, that vicey for voicey for sure. So once again, there's a lovely tension between that sadness and the beauty. I, I guess too, a celebration of the different ways we experience life as we go through it. For mm -hmm. example, if love used to mean rescue, now it's more gladiatorial, though in the end, more clean. Yeah, which is, I think, a weird statement because rescue still seems like it would be better. But once realized that, okay, love isn't about rescue exactly, but gladiatorial makes it seem as if it's all combat and violent. But then what if it is, but it's at least more clean and not messy. So, so it's sort of this constant balancing of, of yeah, re-understanding what we thought we understood, thinking we understood about love. Now we know something different about love or, or one time we believed in the soul apparently, but by implication anyway, it suggests that now the speaker doesn't believe in the soul. And, and so our beliefs shift and our notions of love shift, but that doesn't stop us from trying to believe and trying to love. I guess. Yeah. Um, well, a couple thoughts on that. I mean, this line, for example, if love used to mean rescue, now it's more gladiatorial, though in the end more clean. I mean, as a um, late middle-aged or daughtering or whatever you want to call someone <laughs> of my age um, who has had her share of relationships, uh, I do feel like in at my age, the gladiatorial is kind of an interesting way to put it. I, I'm just more willing to, I guess you could say, take up the sword and say, this is my boundary uh -huh. at my age and not expect that rescue from a relationship and just draw my line. And that's clean. It's clean. Yeah. It's like talk exactly. to the hand. Mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> really? <laughs> and then this idea at the end, I'd been arguing the difference between the soul being cast out and the soul departing. So that's interesting right there. It's like how much of our life is choice, like really choice. Yes. And how much of it is about how we see it, you know, like, <clears throat> I guess I think about this in terms of relationships too, when people will say they were dumped say, but were they dumped or were they already on their way out? And, and someone just hastened it along um, or, or vice versa. You know, we, sometimes people say, well, I, I left that person, but that's the easier way to think of it for pride than to say, oh, I didn't want to leave, but I was given the boot. So Let me just pause right there and uh, just say that this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Deanna Riley. 
this is the Hive Poetry Collective, and I'm talking to the poet Carl Phillips, and we're talking about <laughs> relationships and how we talk about their endings, which we got into this discussion from this lovely poem, Pale Colors in a Tall Field. And I just love that concept. And what it brings to mind is, believe it or not, breastfeeding. <laughs> um, because uh, people say, I weaned my child or my child stopped um, mm -hmm. of his or her own accord at a certain age. And I distinctly remember, and I will never forget it, offering my breast to my baby and the baby looking up at me and you know this, this is before he could he could speak, and just looking at me and going, you know, it's over. Uh huh. And it passed between us like an agreement, and it was so profound. There's no way I could say I weaned him or he stopped. It was an agreement. Uh huh. And I yeah. that's always I should I should write a poem about that, shouldn't I? It's always kind of. It's yeah, it's always kind of stuck in my mind that, oh, this is how relationships change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be the fault of either party. It's just that there's shelf life and as there is to breastfeeding. And, and maybe it isn't that either party decides one day this is the end. It's just like, hmm, we're, we're at the end, aren't we? That's the nicest way for things to end. From right. Mutual understanding. Amicably, amicably. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, uh, wonderful. Why don't we move on to another poem? Um, oh, you know what? I, I think I'd like to read from your previous book, Wild is the Wind. What a great title. Um, I didn't make it up, but you know, it's a okay. song. What, what song is that? It's a song that it's been covered by many people, but I had in mind that, um, uh, oh my goodness, Simone, uh, Nina Simone. Nina Simone. Yes. Um, David Bowie also covered it. Other people have too. It's an old jazz standard, Wild as the Wind. Oh. Uh, kind of about how fleeting things are. The, the love is very fleeting and soon the wind will blow away, will blow away like leaves in the wind. So therefore, Let's hold each other tight while we can. So I thought it would be kind of a cool umbrella for the book. Ah, it's certainly, you know, it's got that nice wah-wah <laughs> to uh <-huh>. it. <laughs> um, alliteration, I guess. Huh. Um, okay, so could you read From a Bonfire? Sure. Uh, yeah, here it is. From a bonfire. There's plenty I miss still that I wouldn't want back, which I'm beginning to think might be all regrets ever had to mean. And there's maybe no shame then in having known some and all these years I've pretty much been wrong. Not that being wrong means wasting time exactly. What hasn't been useful? Having grown up with bonfires each October, having equated them with fall, the communion especially of leaves falling, fire as what both defined the dark, easily taken for granted, and kept the dark at bay. Surely that's been worth something, for it stays with me. In that way, 
It even now marks a difference between who I was and what I've since become, a kind of bonfire myself, unattached though to any time of year in particular, instead a season of the mind entirely as unpredictable in occurrence as in intensity, cracked, blue, forever half done departing, not so different after all, maybe, from the darkness against which I'm at once more apparent and somehow more betrayed. What has restlessness been for? The darkness asks, as if that were the question, when the darkness itself is its own question, the most honest one left, as far as I can see, that's worth asking, that I keep meaning to ask, then faltering. Not at all out of fear, I think. I don't think I'm afraid, but being fire and restless. I guess I turn into a bonfire halfway through. <laughs> so, kind of a semi-persona poem. You heat up right there, uh -huh. heat up. That was Carl Phillips reading from A Bonfire. And this is from the book before the most recent, Wild is the Wind. Uh, well, this one for me, um, it, it it has a, a you know more of a central metaphor of the speaker being like a like a bonfire, mm -hmm. um, but for me it's it's also very much about the speaker being a poet, um, at least the way I view poetry. For me, what has restlessness been for? The darkness asked asks as if that were the question when the darkness itself is its own question the most honest one left as far as i can see that's worth asking that i keep meaning to ask then faltering not at all out of fear i think i don't think i'm afraid but being fire and restless <clears throat> it's that restless search uh, that i feel as a poet that uh -huh. is at the heart of poetry. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why this, this poem spoke to me so much. And also just the stark imagery of the bonfire. Well, I like, I like that. And I, I like the idea of it <clears throat> being able to be seen as about poetry. Because I do think poetry comes from a restlessness of imagination. And though I'm also... I think that question in the poem, what has restlessness been for, is something I ask myself because I've been the big proponent of restlessness in life in general, that I, I, I hate the idea of stasis. And, and so it's a tug of war between wanting stability in life <clears throat> and wanting constant surprise. And also I've written a lot in the past about sexual restlessness. And, and I think that there is a point when I think all the restlessness, it feels a certain way when one's younger, but then to look back and say, so what has been the point of all this restlessness? Like I could have been, I could have stayed with one person for like 50 years. Um, is that what I wanted? Um, or, or was it worth it? I find myself asking a lot of those questions now. Um, again, not with regret, but just sort of thinking, hmm, this is how you chose to live your life. Are you happy with that? Yeah, there's no moral judgment in this poem, but it's kind of like ambivalence, but 
Mm-hmm. Not exactly. I, I, many times in your poetry, I'm asking myself, what is the feeling being put across here? And the only way I can describe the feeling is with the poem itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like really that. hard. It's really hard to put my finger on the sensation that's being put across. But that first line, there's plenty I miss still that I wouldn't want back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think is already an ambivalent space to inhabit because one wouldn't want it back, but that doesn't mean you don't miss it. And, and <clears throat> but presumably, if you don't want it back, you left it. So why are you still thinking about it? Yeah, you know, I think, just speaking for myself, I think that with social media nowadays, we have this opportunity to track down old relationships. Mm -hmm. Because you think about it, you think about that person and the connectedness that you felt with that person, at least for me, and you kind of, I, I guess I should speak for myself, I want to feel that again. And I get the opportunity to connect. And then I become aware of why I'm not connected to that person anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah, this comes to mind because I've been strong armed into a ridiculous, <laughs> a ridiculous reunion with freshman college roommates tomorrow afternoon on Zoom. Apparently it's the 45th reunion of, our, of college or whatever. I don't pay attention because I hate reunions, but there were six of us in freshman year and and they all can't wait to catch up and i've been thinking about how i haven't been in touch with these men since i was 18 and and my memory of at least half of them is that they kind of hated me so why like are we supposed to now have things in common and that's an example where i don't miss it and i don't want it back (laughs) but anyway it's going to happen apparently Oh my gosh. Yeah. Reunions. The one thing I learned from going to a high school reunion was the people that I tried to connect with were probably not the most interesting people. And the interesting people were on the sidelines Mm -hmm. and to look for the people. If I ever go back to another one, which I don't know if I will, I will try to look for the people that I did not connect with in high school and try to find all the interesting people that were not glamorous enough for me to try to connect with. Uh-huh. I, I, if, I ever, if I ever go back. Um, one thing I really like about this poem is that the connection you make between shame and regret. Um, where is that? Oh yeah, okay, there's plenty I miss still that I wouldn't want back which I'm beginning to think might be all regrets ever had to mean. And there's maybe no shame then in having known some and all these years I've pretty much been wrong. Yeah, this idea of thinking there's something wrong with feeling regret, but maybe there's not anything. You don't need to be ashamed of regretting things Um, because that's another thing in my life. I I tell people anyway that I don't believe in regret. that, you know, it's useless. It's a useless emotion um, because you're not, you can't get things back. But, but then I realized, well, I think I have always said that because I think there's something kind of weak in regretting things, but maybe not, you know, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's just kind of radical acceptance. Yeah. 
once again, you've got a really long, some really long sentences. Did you like read Henry James and Faulkner when you? <laughs> I'm really happy that you asked that because people always have all these theories about why my sentences are the way they are. And they always think it's because I study Greek and Latin. Um, but, and, and I'm sure that influenced how I see language or something, but I, in my twenties, especially inhaled almost everything that Henry James wrote. I read all of Proust in translation, not in French. Um, I read all of Edith Wharton. I love those long periodic sentences that can go on for pages. And between that and studying Greek and Latin, I, which is another, those are both inflected languages where the verbs are often at the end and lots of clauses are suspended. I thought, wow, it's an adventure to read a sentence in these authors. And I think it kind of just mapped itself onto me. Um, but it's funny because now I think, I think people act as if I'm trying to create these really hard sentences or make a magical language. I think, have they not read any novels of the 19th century? That's... You know, it's funny, I wrote in, I wrote in here, Henry James. Uh -huh. um, I did read Faulkner, but he didn't get under my skin in college, but Henry James got under my skin and my sentences mm -hmm. became a lot more sophisticated, um, yeah. complex and compound and everything else um, yeah. when, I, when I read Henry James. And God, it was so long ago that I read him, but I just remember how he could put across these emotions and intentions of people, just minute changes in, in their thinking as they came to realize things that I, f I feel in your poetry, I feel the same kind of grappling with awareness that I felt in Henry James's novels. Well, I think what, to me, because people famously complain that nothing happens in his novels, but I think that all the narrative is in emotion and psychology. And so he uses the sentences to convey those minute shifts in thinking and feeling. And I think that's hard to do as opposed to coming up with plot and here's the story and here are the three elements of it. And now here's the conclusion, which, you know, I, I can admire that too, but, but I think there's, as a reader too, it's, you can't be reading for what's going to happen in a Henry James novel. And the whole chapter can be about the exchange of a glance between two people. And, and, and that's actually a lot of action. By the time you get to the end of it, so much has happened. So, yeah, so as if his sentences are the equivalent of, you know, those movies where, maybe in silent movies, especially, when glances have to mean a lot. I don't know. Hmm. Well, I, when I wrote Henry James on there, I was like, well, this is a long shot. <laughs> no. That's what it did, right? Right on the money. <laughs> well, why don't we move on to, oh, yeah, okay. Remind me after you read this. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about how you come up with your titles. Okay. Uh, but let's go back to, you know, we're back in Pale Colors in a Tall Field. Uh -huh. And um, just remind my audience once again that I am Deanna Riley talking to Carl Phillips, poet extraordinaire. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Yes.
Yeah, so hit it, tugging the arrow out. Oh, okay. Yes, tugging the arrow out. There's a nudging that a living horse will sometimes extend toward a dead one. A nudging not so much against death, what is knowable to a horse but not understandable, but against that space right before loneliness settles in for real that horses do, it seems, understand. And so that was the first day. The night was what night always is, a black starfish, black according to some for holiness, to others for the limbs themselves, unfurling as if from long sleep or late stiffness, or as when a quiet thing and very still starts moving, moves one stiff black limb at a time. Thank you, Carl. That was Carl Phillips reading, Tugging the Arrow Out. Do you want me to, you said to remind you about titles. Yes, because you know, (laughs) this one, Pale Colors in a Tall Field, it's kind of fun just to read the table of contents. um, I like Because it's almost like a poem. The last of fanfare. I'm being asked to be more specific when it comes to longing. Pale Colors in a Tall Field. Blue wash of linen canvas believed unfinished to all appearances, tugging the arrow out. And so the, mm-hmm. the table of contents is, is like a poem. Well, I like, I believe that titles are part of the poem, that they, to me, I think of poems and their titles as like Rothko paintings, you know, where they have often it's two squares run on top of each other of different colors. And there'll be some useless title like abstraction number 92 or something. So we're left to sort of think, what is this painting about? And for me, it's about relationality. Like I think Rothko is inviting us to just think about what, what is provoked in you when you see, I don't know, green and blue on top of one another. And I think of titles that way too. The kind of title that does not interest me in general is the kind that's called something like walking on the beach and then it opens i was walking on the beach and and i feel like okay so that was a wasted opportunity because the title could really make you provoke some different thought and so that's that's what i'm hoping for um i don't try to make titles that seem like what does this have to do with anything but for example the poem i just read tugging the arrow out i hope that at least it conveys first of all if you've been shot by an arrow, there's pain. There's some this problem there. And so trying to tug it out is trying to extricate yourself from this very painful situation. And, and so that's, and, and I named it that way, but this poem was written the day after uh, the 2016 election. And it was written in direct response to it. I don't usually write political poems. And, and this, of course, no one would stop and think this is what this is about. But for me, this idea that like, especially, and so that was the first day. And so it's like, what do you do after the first day of this news? And then the night is the starfish that slowly, looks like it's dead, but it slowly starts coming to life again, one stiff black limb at a time. And I was thinking about that, that, okay, that's what you're going to have to do. What are you going to do now? Lie in paralysis for four years? You're going to have to get up and, and you're not dead, so start moving. And 
and I think that too is why it opens up with this idea of horses and what do they know of death and um, uh, yeah, it's it's a I'm not going to say it straightforwardly about that election, but it's it's psych my psychological response to it. About moving so, on. It's about moving on. Yeah. And I hope that comes across by the end, you know, there's a kind of something waking and moving. And, and, and it feels to me, the ending, one stiff black limb at a time, feels hopeful, because, but also um, frightening because we don't know now what happens, what happens next. But I didn't know what would happen next. And so I ended the poem there. You know, I really feel like this poem, now that I'm looking at it, um, is is a wonderful example example of structure creating the turn, and I've got air quotes here. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is like this is what I'm thinking about these days. Um, the first half of the poem is about the horse. The second half is about the black starfish, mm -hmm. and the line in between is kind of biblical. And so that was the first day. And the, the imagery around the horse is devastating. There's mm -hmm. a nudging that a living horse will sometimes extend toward a dead one. A nudging not so much against death that is knowable to a horse, but not understandable, but against the space right before loneliness settles in for real that horses do, it seems, understand. So there's this mm -hmm. terrible recognition of a very deep loss. And so that was the first day, comes after that. And then there's this black starfish that lives in a whole different world. Uh-huh. <laughs> they can't yes. be a liminal world. It can be the world between the sea and the sand. Mm -hmm. I like how the the absolute center line, and so that was the first day, becomes the passageway through how, that's how you tra travel from, you could say the mammalian world to the aquatic world of starfish. And yeah, but even I, I thought, can I do that? Can I have these two things in the same poem? But why not? And again, to me, this is kind of like a Rothko painting because you have, you could, you could divide the poem into the two halves you mentioned and you have horse stuff here and below it, the starfish stuff, and then leave the reader to speculate on what can this mean? Um, and I'm aware that there are going to be readers who won't want to try to find that out, but can't please everyone. Well, you know, when a poem is not narrative, um, it really helps when the imagery is, is extremely vivid and you can just read along and, and flow with the imagery. And this is very much about flowing. And you've mm -hmm. even got the left margin flowing like, a, like an, a, an anemone or something under the water. Uh -huh. It's a very flowy looking poem. I just wanna read that last half, which is I guess kind of the more redemptive half it's the place where the reader and the speaker can come back to life after a terrible loss the night was what night always is i guess that kind of states how this is inevitable 
these losses and these hits. Mm -hmm. The night is always the night. The night was what night always is, a black starfish, black according to some for holiness, to others for the limbs themselves, unfurling as if from long sleep or a late stiffness, or as when a quiet thing and very still starts moving, moves one stiff black limb at a time. So your idea with the title is that it creates its own sort of poetic chunk of space that hovers over the poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not all titles work that way, but <clears throat> I've always just been interested in that, in the relationality, I guess, between title and poem that lies beneath it. Um, you know, and there are different times when a title needs to be more clear and directive. I get that. Um, and I have, I have plenty of poems that just have regular titles. Um, but even when I do have regular titles, I want it to be something different. I have a poem from an old book called The Trees and trees are in it. But by the end, it's very clear that this is not a poem about trees. So that's the thing, I, I want to disrupt expectation. And if someone thinks they're getting something, I want as soon as they step into the poem to get something different and just think, wait, what happened? It'd be like if someone said, here's the forest, step inside. And you stepped inside and you found you were in a desert. And it's like, wait, they called it a forest, but it feels like a desert. So where am I? kind of like modern art or yeah. um yeah it is like modern art and when you mm -hmm. think of the the flow of art through history and how it moved through these stages of being very realistic and then impressionistic and then expressionistic and then modern mm -hmm. the 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 your poetry is very much more in the modern in the modern realm than just laying everything out for people. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> in some ways, I think more than I realize, I've been more influenced than, I've been very influenced by abstract art because I've never studied visual art, but I, even to this day, actually, I still, when I go to museums, I'll see something like a Frankenthaler painting and there will be a clear title, <clears throat> but I don't see what, the title is, I don't see it in the painting. And it's, so I think that's where I began to see things, to under, have a different understanding about how art can work, that the title doesn't have to direct you as to how to see the painting. It can actually provoke some thinking about the, the tension between the title and the visual. And so I feel like I'm just trying to do that with my own titles. Um, and, and uh, yeah, and, and have it them not, have the poem not be so grounded in one thing. Yeah, they kind of uh, vibrate against each other, but you know what, we're running out of time. Yes. So um, why don't you just, wow, I don't know if we have time for anything else. I think we just have to say goodbye, Carl, mm -hmm. uh, it was and the program. It was while it lasted. 
So this has been the Hive Poetry Collective. We've been talking to Carl Phillips. It's been an amazing conversation. His newest book is Pale Colors in a Tall Field. And I would also recommend poets out there that you take a look at his craft books and his books about poetry. I'm Dion O'Reilly. Once again, this is KSQB Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Thank you so much for tuning in. Okay.